Hey there, my lovely friends. How are you? Thank you for dropping into the Holy Shed, which, of course, regulars will immediately recognise is not the Shed. Once again, I am here in London where I had the blessed experience of giving a talk today at St Leonard's Church in Streatham. It was on the parable of the rich fool, which I have to say is a story that always creeps me out a little bit, really, because it brings to mind scary talks by tub-thumping evangelists when I was a kid, you know, who would frighten the living daylights out of us with, uh, you know, you may you may die on the way home tonight, you may be run over by a bus, and if so, where will you spend eternity? Well, listen, that is absolutely not what the parable is about. Um, it's not about heaven and hell. It's not about accepting Jesus and believing in God or being a Christian or any of that kind of stuff. It's actually what it says on the tin. It's about money. It's about wealth. It's about how to live a life. Um, but hey, I better stop there because, you know, I've got other things to say. And if you fancy listening more, I will post a link on Facebook as soon as it's uh, up on the church website. So look, to begin with, I want to just make a little announcement about the next few weeks because I'm going to be taking it a little bit easier in August. So I won't be doing full-blown holy sheds, but don't panic, Mr. Mannering, because I'm not going away. I will be posting a shedlet each week. And if you don't know what a shedlet is, well, it's it's a diminutive holy shed okay well i say it's a diminutive i mean that just depends on how much of a role i get on when i'm talking but um i will try to post them at the usual time on sunday uh but i, I may just do it another time of the week really it depends on what i'm up to and where i am but but you'll know anyway one way or another so uh, things will be back to normal whatever that means in september and by the way guys if you have topics or questions which you'd like me to address from September onwards, do please let me know. I love to speak to whatever it is that may be bugging or interesting you or, you know, maybe things that you disagree with me on. So, um, yeah, send in any thoughts or suggestions that you have. Speaking of which, I have had quite a lot of feedback and appreciation mostly uh, for the past couple of sheds where we have been thinking about God. You know, we've thought about how we can or can't know that there is a God, you know, or what kind of God we might be able to believe in. Um, I've also talked about how I reckon that we all actually experience God in the natural world and in our daily lives, whether or not we are aware of that or whether or not we've got names uh, ways to name God when we encounter God in the non-religious parts of our lives. So last time I talked about how the question, does God exist, is not really a very good question. Why? Because God doesn't exist. God doesn't exist. God is existence itself. God is the mysterious force or presence at the heart of everything that yields existence if you will so existence is is just too small a category all of which prompted a question from a shedster paul who wrote this let me just bring it up before me he wrote i was taught about a personal god who i can know as my personal savior who knows my name and everything about me this personal god 
was one of the ways I could distinguish Christianity from other religions who were wrong. But are we also moving away from a personal God, he says, into a more mystical understanding of faith, a place where people can come and just be? I hope so, Paul says. And if we are moving away, (laughs) then what happens to our personal cosy God, left shuffling away along a cobbled lane with a hovis loaf clutched to his breast? That's a great question, Paul, and what a wonderful image. God shuffling away along a cobbled lane with a hovis loaf clutched to his breast. I think we all love that TV ad, don't we? That music does it every time. Well, for those of us who are old enough to remember it anyway. But the question, you know, is really important. Evangelicalism in particular has majored on the idea of a personal God and in particular a personal saviour, receiving Jesus as your personal saviour, often with the sense or leading to the sense uh, that God is our best mate. And it's rather interesting how people, I think, often want it both ways, you know, to reduce God, to bring God down to this matey level and yet still want him to be Lord of creation. Well, there's a dilemma right there, which I'm sure you can see. But in fairness, I guess the very premise of much practiced Christianity, of things like prayer and liturgy, um, the, the premise of it all is a spoken or unspoken understanding that God is in some way personal, that we can speak to God, that we can connect with God in a direct way, in an intimate way, um, without which I think we may end up feeling that we're heading towards some sort of radical agnosticism, to say the least. Now, the view of most anthropologists is that religion is, intrinsically is, anthropomorphism which, you know, anthropomorphism is when we attribute human characteristics or behaviour to animals, to objects, and of course, to God. So that God becomes a bigger version of us, a superhuman, if you will. And um, this has been a huge problem for theologians who historically have been and, and still are uncomfortable, embarrassed really, by religious anthropomorphisms. Because let's face it, popular Christianity is laden down with naive anthropomorphism. And it's not just academics that that pisses off. I mean, maybe like me, you get sick to death with uh, a Christian subculture of over-matiness, over-familiar talk of me and God, me and Jesus, with glib stuff about, you know, the Lord told me this and the Lord told me that. Uh, And that's not to mention the tribalistic anthropomorphism that God's one of us, you know, one of our clan, not one of them. And um, an enormous amount of modern so-called worship songs are suffocatingly anthropomorphic. Do my head in. That said, I think that certain efforts to cure the anthropomorphic dilemma often result in killing the patient. You know, God becomes inaccessible, distant, foreign to the extent that there's pretty much nothing left to believe in, to seek or to connect with. So 
why bother? And I think that is actually the point at which quite a lot of people uh, walk away from church and religion and and faith and all that because they just conclude that even if this God is there, what does it mean to me if I have no point of connection? But you know what? Maybe there is some truth in both sides, both ends of this sort of tension. Some anthropologists, anthropologists are people who study human behaviour, some anthropologists encourage us not to be so embarrassed or neurotic about anthropomorphizing in religion. Why? Because they say that all human perception, not just religious, all human perception is based on and rooted in anthropomorphizing. We can't but see the world through human eyes. It's how we make sense of everything. We bring things into the realm of human experience, the, the realm that we understand. I mean, dogs and other pets are a fantastic example of this, where we massively anthropomorphize, mostly harmlessly, apart from, you know, when we kill our pets with kindness, because basically of a kind of anthropomorphism. But we also see faces in the clouds, a man in the moon, threatening strangers in dark shadows, in the shapes that we see there. Some people even anthropomorphize their cars, don't they? Attributing names and human behaviours to their wonderful lumps of metal. Uh, I'm not judging, by the way, just saying. It's just the way that we make sense of stuff. I guess the question would be, you know, if you can get this, <laughs> get your head around this. I mean, how would a horse picture or understand God? You know, would it be a human-like God or would it be a horse-like God? How about an ape or a cockatoo? I mean, that's just a silly way of saying that we intrinsically see the world, filter the world through our eyes, through our experience, whatever that may be. And the important thing, therefore, I think is to have some grasp of what we're doing when we anthropomorphize. Not that we try and stop ourselves doing it, but that we understand what's going on here. And, and most importantly, that we therefore don't take our anthropomorphisms literally. The great 19th century philosopher William James wrote a fascinating and a landmark book called The Varieties of Religious Experience, in which he made uh, a generic study of religious phenomena across all the the different sort of traditions and he makes the intriguing observation that when it comes to religion interacting with science then we need to lay aside our anthropomorphisms then god must be exclusively a god of universal laws rather than personal experience because that's how science works a god who as he marvelously puts it does a wholesale and not a retail business now, that's that's a great analogy that he's given there. Uh, this reference to wholesale and retail approaches to religion, I think, is is very useful. The wholesale God. This is my interpretation of it now because he doesn't expand upon it. But the wholesale God is the God that we can't describe. God beyond names. God beyond all the doctrines and dogma and metaphors and images that we draw on and construct to try to make sense of God. 
This God is beyond all of that. This God is mystery, equating to what Albert Einstein spoke of when he says this. This is quite a dense quote, but it's, it's, well, worth, it's well worth looking at. He says, the most beautiful thing we can experience is the mysterious. Now, look, you need to say here, Albert Einstein was no kind of conventional believer. Right? He did not believe in a theistic God out there, but he did believe in something which he called the mysterious. And he says, this mysterious is the source of all true art and science. It's that something, that transcendent, that beyond that appears to us through art and science. He to whom the emotion is a stranger, who can no longer pause to wonder and stand, wrapped in awe, is as good as dead. His eyes are closed. This insight into the mystery of life, coupled though it be with fear, has also given rise to religion. To know what is impenetrable to us really exists manifesting itself as the highest wisdom and the most radiant beauty which our dull faculties can comprehend only in their most primitive forms. This knowledge, this feeling, is at the centre of true religiousness. Well, well you may want to take a screenshot of that or, or Google it for yourself because I think that's a, a really profound and quite dense statement about so much that I'm often banging on about here in the shed. It's, it's the wholesale God, the God beyond all religious formulas and definitions, that which is the beyond. So that's the retail God. I mean, that's the, the wholesale God. Uh, the retail God, on the other hand, is, is God with a face, you know, God with a name the God of biblical stories and church liturgy, the God that we may perceive as and speak to as father or mother, um, who is our lover, um, a shepherd, a deliverer, all these, you know, uh, endless images and metaphors that we have are all part of uh, God doing retail business, if you like. This is the God named differently in different religious traditions. This God is, is personified, and these personifications become the natural language, of course, of prayer and devotion and church language. So retail religion involves speaking to or about God with the sense that God is a being with some likeness to ourselves. And without that, it's nonsense, isn't it? The whole lot is nonsense, unless we are coming from that kind of you know, working assumption. But is it true? Is it true or is it just make-believe? Is God personal? Well, you know, the best I can say to this, because there is no definitive answer, the best that I can say is that I certainly experience God as personal. And that's an important statement. It's not saying God is personal, but it's saying that that's how I experience God. However, I don't think that the only alternative to personal is impersonal. You know, I prefer actually to think of God as transpersonal or suprapersonal, by which I mean that God is everything that we can imagine and include within the notion of personhood 
and infinitely more. Okay, so if, as I believe, God is the ultimate source of everything, including personhood, by the way, albeit shaped and formed through the glorious divine process of biological and cosmic evolution, because for me, the divine spirit is that life force, the creative energy within evolution that drives it forward, that causes it to bubble up and move forward and therefore create personhood. So yes, I believe personhood has its origin in a God who transcends yet also embodies personhood, if that makes sense. So when we experience the retail God, you know, that's when we experience empathy, uh, compassion, healing and hope. We shout and sing and celebrate God's love. Uh, when we experience God as the wholesale God, then we experience mystery, a deep and dazzling darkness, as someone put it, the cloud of unknowing. We sense reverence, awe and wonder, and all our God talk diminishes. Um, you know, we are ultimately reduced to silence because none of those names or words work for us. We stand in the presence of mystery. In terms of, you know, religious tradition, wholesale and retail equate to what's called the via negativa and the via positiva, the, the negative path and the positive path. In broad terms, Via positiva is the path of mainstream religion as we know it, you know, where God is confidently, often overconfidently, named and visualized and represented. Uh, in the via positiva, God is this, and it's all to do with um, analogy. You know, God is like a father or like a mother or whatever else it is. The via negativa is the path of negation. God is not. So it's that tension, you know, which uh, which I think is at the heart of a real uh, faith journey, that it's a kind of God is, is not. God is, is not. It's like these two sort of steps going forward, that every time we say God is this, we all say, say God is not that. God is this, God is not this. And it's that kind of movement forward, which is the, the proper relationship between a via positiva and a via negativa and um, so in the via negativa you know it, it, we have a non-dualistic vision of God not God over there uh, but God as one with everything so we experience God through through interaction with nature been talking about that in recent times um, for me the via negativa is found in uh, my interaction with art and poetry where definitions and namings of God are mistrusted and undermined and we're always pointed to something beyond. But as I say, it's not one or the other. Both of these paths are valid and wisdom uh, looks for an interaction of the two. That sort of is, is not, is, is not. I have no problem with a retail approach to faith. Uh, actually, I've been a religious retailer for all my working life, truth be known. I was the vicar of a parish church, which is a classic retail outlet. Um, I'm comfortable 
with personal references to God, with metaphors that describe God as shepherd or deliverer or mother or father or whatever. I use retail language all the time. But the most important thing to know is it's not actually literally true. None of these things are literally true. Of course they're not. God is not a man or a woman, a king or a queen, a shepherd or whatever. But that doesn't mean that retail language is untrue. When we say that we love someone with all our heart, it may be profoundly true, but it's not literally true. And it's only crude fundamentalism, religious and non-religious fundamentalism, that requires literal fact as the basis for truth. So the specifically religious context remains important to me. I'm not walking away from it. Um, but what's especially important to me in terms of the religious context is the mystical heart in all traditions. And there is something which has, I think, a, a, an amazing sort of bond or unity across traditions found when we move into the more mystical dimensions of faith traditions. Institutional religion, frankly, interests me less and less as my life goes on. I often find it depressing, to be honest. I'm a priest in the Church of England and I do identify with that, you know, somewhat dysfunctional family. Um, me and my wife are part of a gorgeous parish community in South London and I'm deeply grateful for what the church has given me and still gives me. I will continue to serve it uh, as well and effectively as I can. However, I do find it very depressing that so much churchianity fails to connect effectively with the wider culture and with the evident spiritual hunger of our day and it just seems to me there's a wide open goal there which is being missed over and over and over again but what really excites me is the way i sense god mysteriously present in the world at large i am part of the church community and i value that but my greater church is the beautiful cathedral of nature. I also love to wander through the aisles and the side chapels of art galleries, listen out for God in concerts, uh, gigs and other heavenly recitals, in cinemas and theatres and museums. I love the steeples of tall trees and pray as I pass beneath them that we they will help us to discover the wisdom to live peaceably with Mother Earth and her creatures. I love the glimpses of divinity on tube trains and buses when a stranger smiles or I look into the eyes of a dog sat at its owner's feet. Um, I love to walk mindfully through the chapel of everyday life. We have a natural propensity to turn God into an image. That, as I say, has an, an anthropological explanation to it. It's how humans perceive things. We have a propensity to turn God into an image, to create symbols, mental pictures and verbal constructions um, to, to, to understand and connect with God. This is perfectly normal and fine. The problem, as I say, arises when we believe that our images and conceptions of God are literally true, that we can actually describe who or what God is. At that point, religion shifts very much in the direction of idolatry.
we replace that which is infinite and indescribable with something finite and ephemeral. C.S. Lewis identifies this temptation and I would say wrestles with it sublimely in a little piece called A Footnote to All Prayers, which is this. He says, He whom I bow to only knows to whom I bow when I attempt the ineffable name, murmuring thou, and dream of Fadian fancies and embrace in heart symbols I know which cannot be the thing thou art. Thus, always taken at their word, all prayers blaspheme, worshipping with frail images a folklore dream. And all men in their praying, self-deceived, address the coinage of their own unquiet thoughts, unless thou, in magnetic mercy, to thyself divert our arrows, aimed unskilfully beyond desert. And all men are idolaters, crying unheard to a deaf idol, if thou take them at their word. Take not, O Lord, our literal sense, Lord, in thy great unbroken speech, our limping metaphor translate. O oh my goodness, I love that piece. I know that it's kind of using exclusive language, but that's the world that Lewis lived in, speaking all the time of men. Um, but what a piece, what a piece of insight and wisdom. So he's admitting that all God talk, all language and imagery to describe or address God is hopelessly inadequate. Frail images and limping metaphors, which can't possibly be the thing that God is. Every religious symbol, visual and verbal, is but a human, a hermeneutical device, if you will, to address that which is utterly beyond comprehension. And yet, and this is the beauty of this piece, Lewis still doesn't rubbish God talk. He's not throwing it away, but he's seeing it for what it is and then looking beyond it. Fantastic. So there's a prayer that I've been thinking about, which I've called fingerprints everywhere. There is so much to despair of. A nine-year-old girl insanely stabbed to death on the street while playing, just the latest. Sometimes I wonder if you're here at all. Certainly not the you I grew up with. The almighty without equal who intervened at will or not. Mostly not. But then... I see an urban tree, old as the hills, gnarled and polluted, yet gleaming in the sunlight on a street corner, still offering shade, tirelessly converting our mindless CO2 into oxygenised fresh air. I hear generous laughter, see nine-year-old girls playing without a care, notice a car pause unnecessarily to let someone cross the street, and a busker plays Sultans of Swing as if Knopfler himself had nothing to do tonight. There are foul people in this world for sure, yet I can't help feeling hopeful that most prefer kindness to harm. Most 
long to create meaning for themselves and others, most yearn to love and be loved. When I turn again, God, your fingerprints are everywhere. In silent beauty, mostly unnoticed. In human resilience and goodwill. In the desire to better the lives of friends and strangers. In that still small voice unstintingly calling us to be, just be, the kind of people we will one day look back upon with gladness. Amen. Now, I don't know if you have a candle handy, but I, I want to light a candle for that little girl. For Leela Valentite, a nine-year-old in Boston in Lincolnshire. I have not the faintest clue what was going on in somebody's head to strike down this precious little gem of humanity. But I hold her in my broken heart and I hold her family and friends. Let's take a moment of quiet. Amen. Well, it come, we come to a time where we're going to take drink a toast. So if you've got a drink handy, please grab it right now. It's difficult, isn't it, to move on from the thought of little Leela, Lilia. But there is so much to celebrate in our world. There is so much to be glad about. There is so much that shouts divinity to me in the animate and inanimate aspects of our world and of our experience. So as we move forward into August and whatever it is that you're getting up to during this next month, dear friends, I invite you to make a toast with me to life. Lachaim. Marvellous. Amen. So, if you like the Holy Shed, if you like what we're trying to do here, then you can buy us a coffee. You can support us in this way. Uh, a coffee or a whiskey. Somebody put a note up this week <laughs> saying that your last talk was worth three coffees Dave so that was very nice uh, thank you so much dear friends uh, you've been so good in supporting us and keeping this little venture going uh, of the Holy Shed in so many ways uh, it's it's much appreciated so is a blessing friends in happy times may you be grateful in challenging times, may you be brave. 
in tedious times, may you find joy in the moment. And at all times, may you be assured that you are God's dearly beloved. Amen. Okay, well, I'm going to finish with a, a lovely little film, which if you've been at Soul Space, if you were at Soul Space last week, you'll have seen, but you'll like to see it again. I've said before that I think that one very crude way in which you could divide the world is the world can be divided between give a shits and don't give a shits. People who care and those who basically aren't bothered. It's all about them, like the rich fool in the story that I talked about this morning. The kind of artists and musicians that I tend to be attracted to, uh, who, I, who I love and whose work I love, are people who I'd say are give a shits. Uh, because for them, art and music um, is, is not just about a self-indulgence. It's about transmitting values of love and justice and seeking a better world. Now, as you'll know, if you're a regular, Michael Frante, for me, uh, the American singer and rapper, is right up there for me as a give a shit person. He and his wife, Sarah, set up a thing called Do It For The Love, a foundation uh, charitable uh, enterprise called Do It For The Love and its vision is to advance the use of music as a, as a kind of form of therapy in the treating and healing of individuals and Michael Franti says that's why he does music, that's why he wanted to do music in the first place <clears throat> because he wanted to make a difference to people, he wanted to bring something uh, positive and healing <coughs> into the world and so Do It For The Love, amongst other things, fixes it up for people, often with very serious illnesses, uh, maybe terminal illnesses, to meet their musical heroes and hear them live. And that may sound like a kind of trivial thing, but it ain't trivial at all. I think it's giving uh, a lovely little gift, a, a, a precious shaft of light into what may be a very dark place. And this little film that I'm going to finish, finish with is the story of Kylie, one such person whose musical hero is a country singer called Luke Holmes and um, and how it was fixed up for her to meet him and to hear them. And I, you know, I'm going to leave you with this. Hope you've got a tissue handy because it is very lovely. Meanwhile, dear friends, go well. Whatever you're doing over the next month, have a great time. I'll still be around in my shedlet. So um, hope to meet you uh, in that form. Uh, but, you know, be good, be kind to the world, and I think the world will be kind to you. Um, stay human, and I'll see you soon. Bye-bye. My name is Kylie Schwartz. I am 23 years old. I work full-time, and I was going to school full-time. I was doing both full-time, um, but I had to quit that for right now. I had a lot of symptoms before we ever got to the diagnosis. I kept going to the doctor and I knew something was wrong. So finally went in uh, one more time. They got a CT scan. Turned out I had a 13 by 7 tumor in my chest. And so I was admitted to the hospital that night. These are the people that I've leaned on the most. The girls, as soon as they heard, I don't even remember them being at the hospital, but they came. Uh, Luke Combs heard about my story, sent his beautiful makeup artist Callie out here before the show to do me and my girlfriend's makeup, which is amazing. My cancer is pediatric, 
So they have a child life specialist. Her name is Christy. She heard me talking about this concert and how bad I wanted to meet Luke Holmes, but I didn't get the tickets for it. She's like, well, I should sign you up for this Do It For The Love Foundation and all the rest is history. <laughs> Literally the first thing that I told my oncologist was that he had to make me live till May 12th. So I, was, I wasn't gonna miss it no matter what. Radiation was six weeks long. I just got back and we listened to Luke Combs the entire time, every single day for 33 days. I'm so excited that I don't even know how to act. It's, I don't wanna like fangirl, but I probably <laughs> We're gonna get in a limo soon and we're gonna have the time of our life at Red Rocks. anybody I don't even know I don't know what to say or do I'm a giver I'm not a receiver so it's hard for me but it's amazing 